You've heard of Grammarly, and you might think it's a fancy spell check, but people on your team have been using it and loving it for years because it does way more than you realize. Grammarly is a secure AI writing partner that works seamlessly across apps and websites and can write an instant first draft in a few clicks, not a few hours. When every word your team writes is clear, concise and on brand, companies can save 19 days per employee per year. Learn what better writing can do for your company at Grammarly.com. Grammarly. Easier said, done. It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. From the heart of where innovation, money and power collide in Silicon Valley and beyond. This is Bloomberg Technology with Emily Chang. I'm Caroline Hyde in New York in Family Chang, and this is Bloomberg Technology. Coming up in the next hour, details on a report that Elon Musk's deal to buy Twitter is in serious jeopardy. Washington Post saying that Musk's team has stopped engaging in some discussions around the $44 billion deal. Plus, we're back at Sullen Valley, of course. We will chat with Eventbrite chairman and co-founder Kevin Hart about the consumer demand of live events as they've made a big return post-pandemic. And we stay in Sun Valley and chat with Major League Soccer Commissioner Don Garber. Details about the new partnership between MLS and IMG Arena to double down on sports betting later this hour. Joining us now, Bloomberg's Ed Ludlow out there in Sun Valley where, of course, Elon Musk is meant to be landing soon. Right, exactly. And the key thrust of that Washington Post report is that Elon Musk's team working on this deal do not believe that the data Twitter is providing about the level of bots on the platform is verifiable. According to the Washington Post's reporting, that they've stopped engaging with potential equity partners as part of the financing of the deal. Um, and this is, you look at the after-hours reaction we saw on Twitter stock down five or six percentage points. This does put the deal in serious doubt with Elon Musk not yet here in Sun Valley us about the bots. I thought they just reiterated guidance about them. I mean, this, the timing of this is, is bizarre and, and, and spectacular, frankly, because earlier today, Twitter executives briefed that and reiterated that less than 5% of users on the platform are bots. Twitter believes, according to these executives, that a third party cannot verify it because it's a mix of publicly and private data that Twitter holds as the operator of the platform. And as has been reported by multiple media outlets, they have been going above and beyond, it seems, to give Elon Musk that extra data anyway. So if that Washington Post report is to be believed, um, it's going to make for an awkward situation here at the Allen & Co conference. And an awkward situation, Ed, that could last years, right? Because, I mean, he can't just back out of a deal that he said he didn't need due diligence on anyway. 
I think this is really interesting. You know, I've been speaking to a lot of folks in the on the mountain bike trails here of Sun Valley, and you know, the, the idea that they put forward is that the reverse termination fee on this deal, one billion dollars in either direction, is not straightforward. It's relatively codified what they agreed. The concern would be that Twitter would say, "Well, hold on, we're going to fight this in a legal battle." The other side of that argument is that could be a very long, drawn-out, and expensive thing for Twitter to do, which you know, frankly, doesn't have the most boastful or, or fantastic balance sheet or, or finances. Elon Musk has taken off, according to the Jet Tracker on Twitter. Sources here tell me that he was expected to come and has changed his arrival time multiple times. Parag Agrawal, the CEO of Twitter, is here. Ned Siegel, the CFO, is here. Let's see what happens, Caro. Let's see what happens. Plenty to come from our own Ed Ludlow, we're pleased to say. We're going to be going back to Sun Valley with Eventbrite chairman Kevin Hartz in a moment. Meanwhile, let's get you up to speed with a verdict in for Ramesh Sunny Balwani. You remember him, the former president of Theranos and the ex-boyfriend of one Elizabeth Holmes, the founder of that business. He was found guilty of fraud for his role in the collapse of the $9 billion blood testing startup. Thursday's decision comes six months after Holmes was convicted of defrauding investors in the company. It's been six months. Balwani faces as long as 20 years in prison on charges. Let's get back out to Sub Valley, the conference there in Idaho, where many of the world's top business leaders are indeed gathered to talk deals. Bloomberg's Ed Ludlow is talking about them, about deals. We've got a special guest, Ed. Yeah, I do. And, you know, the conversation in and around Sun Valley is, is a big picture one about inflation, about recession, about private markets, public markets, startups, venture capitalists. So I'm delighted to be joined by Kevin Hartz, of course, Eventbrite co-founder and chairman, now in the world of venture capital, general partner and co-founder of A-Star Capital. So given that spiel I just gave, explain where we are in the world right now. Uh, well, you know what one would say about a, an entrepreneur and, a, uh, and, and an investor is that uh, I'm not a macro person, but, uh, you know, have, uh, unfortunately, I'm old enough to have been through a few cycles yes. of, of ups and downs. And, and uh, you know, I, I think we're really just in the beginning um, act of, of, of this um, process. I think we, uh, with, with the Fed stimulus and the action taken in March of 2020, we kind of delayed and pushed out um, in, in, in the now amplified what's what's happening now and that's a, a very yes. uh, dire outlook on on the economy over the coming years so let's pivot to your other role your other life chairman of Eventbrite and there's there seems to be these two competing currents right and and Sun Valley kind of captures that we've come out of a pandemic and now we're concerned about a recession right but people finally for the first time in a long time are getting back together through your Eventbrite lens how do you see the world well, we had, and in, in Julia, the CEO, uh, did a brilliant job of navigating us uh, Eventbrite through the, the downturn. We had sold almost $5 billion in tickets uh, in 2019. In March of 2020, we had negative uh, ticket volume, meaning right. there were more refunds. Uh, in, in, uh, Julia really moved insanely quickly to uh, to shore up the business and, and raise funding in the public markets. Uh, so we feel we've kind of been through what's happened over the last six months um, back in, in March of 2020. Yes. Uh, and we're now seeing the kind of return of the, the live experience. People are uh, just so hungry to get out. Uh, but they're not uh, spending, you know, we've, we've got this inflationary cycle. They're not spending what they used to for like the large concerts uh, that they'd maybe 
maybe travel to or so on, uh, they're going local. And that is really what Eventbrite primarily covers is, is the local events in one's community. And they tend to be at a lower price point. And so we're, we're really seeing a, a great surge based on, on that. Uh, uh, Brian Chesky at Airbnb has pointed out a similar phenomenon, and that is that uh, people are, are going local. Now, that was during COVID, but that habit has, has stayed, especially in these inflationary times. Uh, so staying local is, is really what it's about, and, and we think yes. our business is well positioned for it. It's interesting you bring up Airbnb, Brian Chesky. We've seen recessions and financial crises before, 2000, 2008, and startups big names came out of that and went on to become giant companies. You know, how do you see that? Is there, are there opportunities here for the next Google, the next Airbnb to emerge? I, I don't want to sound morose, but I get a little bit oh, please. I, I get a little bit giddy during like these downturns because it it really uh, separates out the, you know, kind of tourists, uh, you know, those that could come to the Valley or, or go before investors and raise $5 billion off a plan. This is really when uh, great businesses are formed, when uh, you know, people thinking against the grain uh, are starting companies and, and will really endure in a capital efficient manner and we'll see, we'll absolutely see some great businesses. So putting on my A-star uh, capital hat, yes. um, you know, I'm um, just excited. I'm, I'm seeing a pickup of investments coming, coming in and uh, we are very excited to find that next Airbnb. I had the good fortune of uh, being a seed investor in Airbnb back in 2009. You um, got to know Brian, Nate, and Joe, and they were scrappy and they were hungry, and it was a recession. And, and they had what it took to survive. They had what it took, exactly. Well, talking about survival, I, I hear a lot of competing things over the last few days. Some say, keep your powder dry, do not deploy capital. Because of volatility in public markets, they're spooked. Others say, no, I'm going to go out there. I see opportunity. Are there any industries or is any sort of thematic um, direction that you're taking with your investment thesis? Uh, that's that's uh, that's a very important question. I've traditionally been uh, really founder focused. So like a Brian, Nate, and Joe at Airbnb, for example, are an extraordinary team. Um, was the investor in Pinterest, Ben Silverman, who who actually after a dozen years has just stepped down as, as CEO, but has built a great business. Um, so what, what generally happens at the seed stage is you, you, you invest in great people um, and they create these new industries. We are, um, of course, very excited about you know the, this stage of AI. We're, we're many chapters into the AI revolution and, and there's much more to be done in that. Um, yes. Clean tech has risen so quickly um, and it's very exciting to see something that, that uh, can actually drive uh, a real business and, and drive real yes. results, but also uh, really help us uh, understand and, and um, kind of slow this the, this yes. uh, environmental issue we're facing today. Uh, so there's a there's a myriad of, of spaces, and and you know if you just look up back at uh, you know Elon Musk, who would have ever thought that space would be a segment or you had to go there. Uh, you had to go to Elon Musk. Well, there. who can't? You know, I know. Well, we have to leave it there. <laughs> Kevin Hart's general partner, co-founder of A Star, also Eventbrite chairman and co-founder, of course, Caroline great private markets take on what's going on in the world. It really was, and it was a great interview, Ed Ludlow. We thank you so much. Let's just, uh, for a moment, before we, of course, return to Ed with his interview on the Major League Soccer Commissioner, Don Garber. That's going to be another key focus on the long-term partnership with IMG Arena. 
We're going to be talking again, of course, about one Elon Musk. And let's talk about the Musk deal. Apparently, Twitter in serious jeopardy, that deal, so says the Washington Post. Twitter now responding, saying it intends to close the deal with Musk at agreed terms. Said that all along, of course. Reiterates it will continue to share information with Musk, particularly around the bots. Comments in an email statement. And Twitter is also confirming that it is indeed cutting jobs in its talent acquisition team. That was re previously reported by Reuters. Plenty more on that deal and some other stuff for you too. This is Bloomberg. What if everyone at work were an expert communicator? What if every doc, message and email they wrote was perfectly clear and concise? Inbox numbers would drop, customer satisfaction scores would rise and everyone would be more productive. That's where Grammarly comes in. Grammarly is a secure AI writing partner that understands your business and can transform it through better communication. Companies that use Grammarly save an average of 19 days per employee per year. That's because with Grammarly's AI, what used to take a few hours only takes a few clicks, like generating an instant first draft in your company voice or tailoring a message to your specific audience and goals. And Grammarly's personalized on-brand writing help is built in everywhere your team works, across 500,000 apps and websites. Plus, it's safe, secure, and already IT-approved. Join 70,000 teams who trust Grammarly with their words and their data. Learn more at Grammarly.com. Grammarly. Easier said. Done. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. giants, including Apple, Microsoft, Google, well, they're actually all facing questions about whether they'd hand over users' personal data to authorities pursuing evidence on abortion seekers, each company bracing for the multi-state legal quagmire that will govern privacy in a post-Roe world. Bloomberg's Dina Bass wrote all about this in a fabulous piece for Bloomberg. And we just want to dig in, Dina, and really, what are some of the issues, legal labyrinth, that you're expecting to crop up here? Well, first of all, we have to remember what's different now than pre-Row. Now everybody keeps everything online, so there's this digital trail of breadcrumbs that investigators could use if they wanted to get to someone who had had an abortion or someone who helped them in any way, which is, you know, increasingly becoming illegal in U.S. states. So the problem is all of these different tech companies, these different apps, have little bits of data on you, and actually not little bit, volumes. And the data is in all sorts of different places, and it's going to be governed by a patchwork of laws. Because imagine you have a patient who's potentially in Texas. Maybe they're trying to secure abortion drugs from New York. Now, maybe they get an email receipt uh, to, their, to a Microsoft email account. Maybe they search for those drugs using Google. Those companies are in two different states, and they store their data in tens of different data centers in other states in the U.S. The question then becomes, if an investigator, if a court wants to get a hold of that data, whose laws take precedence? 
And from a previous reaction function, now this is a, have to reiterate once again, an incredibly politically divided and charged conversation that we're having, Dina. And of course, about one third of, of those that answer Pew surveys do indeed agree that we should have anti-abortion laws. So we understand basically the division here. Does it stop and restrain these sorts of tech companies from responding in how they would have done previously? Uh, you know, we don't know what they're going to do. That's that's part of what we're waiting for. The major tech companies have not been willing to comment to, to me or other reporters who've asked them as to whether they'll fight these sorts of data requests. We have some amount of history of what they've done with other types of data requests. Each of these major companies pub publishes uh, every six months a report on government data requests and how many they've complied with, where they've come from, are they national security. So we know that the companies like Facebook like Apple, like Microsoft, uh, they do comply, uh, and like Google, they comply with the majority of the requests that they get, uh, but they do fight some. So we've had very high profile cases of both Apple and Microsoft fighting data requests they consider to be unlawful. Mm. What we don't yet know is whether they'll do that in these cases with, with women who've had abortions or providers. But also, uh, what data is protected, Dina? Like under HIPAA, uh, I think a period trackers on, on apps, is that yet being identified as something that's protected? Uh, so a period tracker is, does not, as far as I know, qualify for HIPAA. So I, I think that's part of what people need to realize. A lot of things that people consider health data and they think, well, I go to my doctor and I have to sign that form about who it can be released to. A lot of your health data is not under HIPAA. What HIPAA governs health plans and the providers who accept those health plans. Mm. It, lawyers I spoke to said it may probably also cover a cloud provider if they're providing cloud services storing data for that health plan. Yeah. But a period tracker and your, iPhone, your Apple Watch, your Fitbit, that's not HIPAA data. And also, if you get a, a court order signed by a judge, that can allow a HIPAA entity to release the data anyway, even if it's governed by HIPAA. So yeah. part of the issue that we're facing here is that we don't really have precedents here, and lawyers that I spoke to, advocates, uh, people at the Electronic Frontier Foundation think we're in for a number of years yeah. of lawsuits to try to figure out how this is going to go. Dina Bass, we thank you so much much is a great story and let's get to someone who's thinking an awful lot about these sorts of issues Alana Berkowitz founding partner at Springbank Collective it invests in early stage companies building the very infrastructure to enable working women families to thrive across the careers and Alana of course you were former Obama administration technology policy official yeah. across Obama Biden transition team the FCC yeah. and Secretary Clinton's office at the State Department you have a lot of interaction with administration but now <laughs> in the funding environment this is difficult right yeah and from a difficulty uh, perspective. Are, thanks for having me first. Yeah, so, you know, it, it's difficult in a whole bunch of ways. Um, you know, with the, with the fall of Roe, we already had to see digital healthcare companies stepping in kind of overnight to fill in some of the care gaps created by these policies. So we saw companies like Kill Club with a demand for emergency contraception spike by 5,000% within just a couple of days of the overturning of Roe. Patients are clearly worried about being denied access to care, and we've seen some hoarding behavior um, with some of the emergency contraception. You know, we're seeing companies like Hey Jane, a telehealth medication abortion provider, uh, with huge spikes of interest. And we're also needed, we're also starting to see women's health tech players who are um, not necessarily in poor reproductive health also needing to adapt. So, for instance, Maven, a women's health unicorn, 
that is a digital health platform for women sold through employers, um, added a wallet app to help users calculate the cost of reproductive procedures and actually facilitate reimbursements. And at the same time, employers are facing a tremendous amount of uncertainty, not just tech employers, of course. Given the U.S.'s fragmented healthcare system, employers have always played a major role in healthcare for American workers, and that's only going to grow since 50% of Americans get their health insurance through their employer. Yeah. So, what, so what company you work for has always mattered for your healthcare, and now where your job is located and where that employer is located is going to have a really outsized role in the kind of cost kind and quality of care you can receive, especially as a woman. And for a lot of these companies, they're just in the earliest days of figuring out what the actual implications are of actually implementing policies to support to support these workers across HR, across healthcare, across their legal teams. Alana, there has been a lot of hand-wringing and concerns and worry and lack of clarity, yeah. but it feels like there is innovation there as well at this moment. Um, absolutely. So, you know, I think Women's healthcare companies are going to continue to innovate. Frankly, they have to innovate in this moment. Over the last couple of years, we've seen an increasing interest in digital health companies that are serving the healthcare needs of women. In 2021, those kinds of companies raised 1.4 billion. That was 2x the year prior. So I think we're going to keep seeing that energy. You know, I will say just to also follow on on, on what the reporter who preceded me was discussing in terms of these data issues. I still believe there's a tremendous amount of room for innovation. I also think that uncertainty creates a real challenge for, for innovation. And right now we have really, really deep uncertainty around how these policies are going to play out at the state level. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that, you know, this is something I've seen both in the government and now as an investor is that enormous uncertainty around regulation and policy enforcement can really stifle innovation for new players who are trying to solve really important women's health and population health health problems. And of course, it creates lots of costs and burdens for consumers. Yeah. You know, for instance, the Googles and the Apples of the world, um, you know, when it comes to challenging potentially some of these data requests, undoubtedly have the money and the lawyers to do so. But one imagines, you know, especially if you're a smaller startup, that that could, you know, an enormous sort of legal burden, legal liability to put you out of business. When, of course, you yourself backing certain companies, mm -hmm. unicorns like Chief, for example, yeah. Yeah. you know, you've been trying to look, I'm sure, across the U.S., but now mm -hmm. suddenly are we going to see pockets of healthcare innovation suddenly just become in New York, in California, yeah. rather than perhaps in the Austins or, or the new yeah. areas of technology? Yeah, absolutely. You know, I think that this, the, the Dobbs ruling and some of the subsequent implications at the state level, which, of course, are just beginning to play out right now, might make employment and or investment in certain states more or less appealing. So right now, for instance, you know, we're, we're always excited about innovations in fertility care to make it more affordable, more accessible for, for anyone to build the kind of family that they would like to build. Um, and right now, if you're an innovator building a venture-backed company in fertility care, frankly, it probably just makes sense to build your company a state like California or New York, which will continue presumably to support these businesses and not create a lot of uncertainty around the treatment of embryos, the treatment of fertility care. Um, you know, that's just one, one example, but I think we're going to see that play out across the board. 30 seconds. You still bullish on the space, though? Um, I am absolutely permanently bullish about improving the lives of, of women, and I will always be bullish about the opportunities in women's health. And one of the important things to remember is that when we talk about women's health, that doesn't just equal reproductive health. It never has. Um, you know, women, there's all sorts of health conditions that are enormous multi-billion dollar markets where 
it impacts women much differently than men, whether it's Alzheimer's, heart disease, type 2 diabetes. It wasn't until 1986 that women were even allowed to participate in clinical research and trials. So I just think reproductive health is obviously a core component of where we can be investing in women's health, but it is so much bigger than that, and we're going to keep investing, and founders are going to keep building amazing hard things. Coming from one of the coolest looking barns in New York, we thank you, Alana <laughs> Berkowitz. Come, take your time out of a vacation to spend some time with us on Springbank Collective. Yeah. Fascinating. Thank you so thank much. Thank you for having me. This is Bloomberg Technology. I'm Caroline Hyde in New York. Now, the Sun Valley Conference is underway, of course, in Idaho, with many of the world's top business leaders gathering there to talk deals, to talk Elon Musk. And he's also expected there this weekend, of course. Bloomberg's Ed Ludlow joins us now. You've got another special guest. And this one, well, people say soccer. You and I, we'd call it football. Oh, we call it football. And that's, I, I get to talk about my two favorite things, <laughs> technology and football. We'll call it soccer. Don Garber, Major League. MLS commissioner, you struck a deal with Apple, 10-year deal, stream direct to consumers around the world that want Major League Soccer, MLS. Why Apple? Well, you know, they're the perfect company for us, you know, innovative, aggressive, ambitious, really thinking hard about what their future is going to be in the sports streaming uh, place. For us, every game anywhere in the world right. on any device is perfect for our young and very digitally native fan base. Over 80% of our fans are streaming soccer or football anyway, so we couldn't have really picked a better Well, let me ask Apple. you this. Why not an Amazon or why not a linear TV package with some of the names you've been associated for the last decade? Well, we'll still have some linear uh, deals. We'll announce those soon. So it's okay. the combination of, of linear and then games that we'll have in front of the Apple paywall, games on Apple TV+. Plus and then most exciting for us, you know, the first global direct-to-consumer subscription channel, as you've mentioned, uh, which is really going to break new ground for how we'll connect with our fans, whether it's somebody that's watching a game here in Sun Valley or they're watching it in, you know, Spain or they're watching it in South America. They're, they're the perfect partner to be thinking about how do we become a global league in the most global sport. Apple reportedly paid $250 million. I don't know whether you can confirm that's accurate, but what are they getting out of this? Did, is there actually a belief that Apple will grow its Apple TV Plus or its own subscription audience because there's a demand for MLS? Well, you know, it's a multi-billion dollar deal over time. And, and I mean, for them, uh, this is the perfect way for them to be thinking about the live sports experience for their consumers. Uh, so what it meant to them is a, is a good question for Apple. As I've mentioned, for us, uh, when we were thinking about aggregating all of our content, our local games, our youth matches, our second division, which is called MLS Next Pro, every game that we have, whether it's in market or out of market, you now have an experience for a fan that is unprecedented. And that for us is really, really exciting. Does it bring you a global audience? Without doubt. So, as you know, we, we just signed Gareth Bale, comes over from Real Madrid, he's playing in Los Angeles, and maybe there's some small Argentinian guy that might come to our league. I've seen some reports, some, yeah. At some point. So you could think that you'd have as many subscribers and fans in Buenos Aires or in Barcelona or in Madrid or in Wales when you sign yeah. global players. We're a global league needing a global platform, and this will 
give us that opportunity to expand the breadth and scope of our media business. Football or soccer has, has grown. Let's call it soccer. Soccer has Let's grown <laughs> enormously in North America, right? You've gone from a situation where you're almost at 29 teams with the expansion, three stadiums dedicated to soccer to now 26, something like that. Where do you invest next? Is there another deal to be done? What is that? How do you grow to the next you know, step? It's a, it's a great question. You know, it's 10 to $15 billion in investment in the league over the last number of years. A lot of that is in these unique, almost cathedrals for the sport, these 26 stadiums that you mentioned. We opened up a brand new one in, in uh, Nashville, Tennessee. 30,000 fans, it sold out every game. Now the move is on content. So how do you invest in delivering the right experience with our local uh, teams in, in many ways being content delivery uh, producers for our new service? Yeah. How do you now think about the next develop the generation of development of our player pool so that when we have uh, the ability to develop young players, sell them overseas, big announcement of two ex-MLS players going to the Premier League today, That's right. bringing in young players in their prime that are playing overseas, being a global player player in both the purchasing and selling of players, there's going to be an enormous amount of investment out in the years to come. Two quick questions. The men's soccer team going to the World Cup, does that boost the MLS? Oh, without doubt. You know, the interest in our league grows with our national team playing in the World Cup. We see those boosts of, of interest and energy. Our league was born out of the 1994 World Cup, and imagine yes. the rocket fuel that we'll have leading up to the 2026 World Cup. But beyond the fact that we'll have so many young American players, 40 or 50 of our players will play in uh, for national teams that'll be in the World World Cup. So we yeah. have players from 70 different countries playing in Major League Soccer more than any other league in the world. The World Cup is the showcase and platform for that. Before I run out of time, there's a chap called Todd Bowley who bought a club called Chelsea, which I've supported for the majority of my life, as you know. He says that the Premier League is undervalued. Are clubs in the MLS undervalued? You know, listen, I, I think the value in sports is driven by ultimately, you know, what the opportunity is, what people are willing to pay, and how have, have owners, if you will, or leagues been able to exploit their intellectual property. I do believe our teams are undervalued, and Todd could speak better about what he thinks about the Premier League. What I'll say is that the future of our league and the future of the sport in America is, is so bright, and there's so many endless opportunities with the, just the overall diversity of, of our, our consumer base, the fact that we'll have more teams and more stadiums. Right. Our best years, particularly with a new partnership with Apple, I just saw that you, now, you, uh, you mentioned the new IMG Arena uh, sports exactly. betting deal that we did. There's so many great intellectual property opportunities that we've not yet even fully exploited. So best days are still ahead. All right. All eyes on American football or soccer, MLS Commissioner Don Garbo. Great. It's just a pleasure to have you here on the show talking football and tech, Caroline. If you're at Stamford Bridge right now, Ed, what would you sing? Oh, we all follow the... No, I'm not going to do it on air, Caroline. <laughs> Better luck next time. Beautiful. It's as if you transported us there. Ed Ludlow, we thank you so much. Meanwhile, let's talk about a bit more sport, but athletes within it. An Apple Watch with a bigger display, larger battery, and a rugged metal casing may be in the works. Apple is seeing, well, it's said to be building a new version of the smartwatch for extreme sports athletes. Bloomberg's Mark German joins us now. No singing, but certainly let's talk about the watch. And, and what, how big is this market? You know, I think I want to take a step back 
and figure out why would Apple do something like this, right? If they're going to create a new high-end Apple Watch, a sports edition, they probably want it to not only appeal to that specific market you're mentioning, but everyone, right? So they have the iPhone Pros now, the iPad Pros, the AirPods Pros, MacBook Pros. That lets them charge more money, right? So what we're going to see with this extreme sports edition, to your point, is we're going to see more revenue. We're going to see ASPs. We're going to see the average sales price of the Apple Watch go up for this product. So I think that's why they are doing this, because that market is not so big, right? But if you look at it more as an Apple Watch Pro than as an Apple Watch Explorer or Extreme Sports Edition, not only are you going to appeal to the market you mentioned, but you're going to appeal to the affluent Apple customer mm. who's willing to spend more on the more advanced product. So talk to us about sort of what features, what areas it's really going to be trying to exploit to lure people in. So you're going to see a bigger battery, right? So you're going to have the longest battery life uh, ever on an Apple Watch. You're going to have a bigger display, so the biggest display ever on an Apple Watch. You're probably going to have a titanium case, which they use in what's called the Apple Watch Edition today. So something far more durable, right? Three to four times more durable than the normal stainless steel Apple Watch, and probably five to seven times more durable than the normal aluminum Apple Watch, right? You're going to see more shatter-resistant screen. How many times have people knocked their Apple Watch into a doorknob or something else and cracked that screen, right? So you're going to see that as well as a new body temperature sensor so you can take your temperature on the watch. It won't give you an exact number-based reading, but it may be able to indicate if you have a fever or other type of condition going on that you should might that you might want to look more into. Mark Gurman, always there with the latest and greatest hits for what's coming next out of the Apple pipeline. We thank you. Coming up, as investors remain pretty cautious on digital assets, as of course crypto winter seems to be setting settling in, we are going to be speaking with Elise Killeen of Stillmark on the state of big Bitcoin startups in particular. This is Bloomberg. What if everyone at work were an expert communicator? What if every doc, message and email they wrote was perfectly clear and concise? Inbox numbers would drop, customer satisfaction scores would rise and everyone would be more productive. That's where Grammarly comes in. Grammarly is a secure AI writing partner that understands your business and can transform it through better communication. Companies that use Grammarly save an average of 19 days per employee per year. That's because with Grammarly's AI, what used to take a few hours only takes a few clicks, like generating an instant first draft in your company voice or tailoring a message to your specific audience and goals. And Grammarly's personalized on-brand writing help is built in everywhere your team works, across 500,000 apps and websites. Plus, it's safe, secure, and already IT-approved. Join 70,000 teams who trust Grammarly with their words and their data. Learn more at Grammarly.com. Grammarly. Easier said. Done. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. like crypto winter settling in. Bitcoin higher, 21,000 on the day, but really, where are we in terms of the nuances? We're worried a lot about the crypto lenders out there, but what about when you drill down from 
coin to coin, from ecosystem to ecosystem. Let's talk the Bitcoin one in particular right now. Elise Kalin's with us, founder and managing partner of Stillmark. And remind us, you're a Bitcoin VC firm. You're very much focused on that particular part of the crypto sphere. How is your area, how are your startups faring at the moment? Well, Bitcoin founders tend to be very um, financially responsible. And so folks have prepared long in advance for the crypto Bitcoin bear market. In fact, what they're doing now is finding ways to take advantage of it. And so there's two things that are important. One is just to build and follow the established roadmap. A bear market is a time where you get more resources to dedicate to building because you're not struggling to just keep your head above water with growth. But the second thing that we can do in a bear market is to take time to really dive into the engagement and adoption metrics from the bull market or from really any part of the market cycle and start to understand what users are saying about the product and the protocols. That will be the experience um, of this market for really top founders in the space and what we're seeing from our founders. And so what of that data, early though it might be, what is that data telling you about uh, as and when we exit some sort of crypto winter? What people are going to want, what sort of efficiencies, what sort of real use cases are going to be built? Well, frankly, people want the space to continue to mature. So some of the collapses that we're seeing in companies that were making promises that they couldn't keep around yield product or otherwise um, is starting to drive home the point to folks holding digital assets that it, there needs to be more accountability. That's possible in Bitcoin. And in fact, Bitcoin was to allow for transparency in the ecosystem because, as you know, the Bitcoin blockchain is a public ledger. As an example of something that customers are starting to demand or should, you can ask for folks holding your Bitcoin to be able to prove those reserves. We know that some of the platforms that had promised these um, lending-based yield returns, mm. we know that some of those platforms are now telling their customers that, in fact, they don't have the funds that they said they had. Now, with Bitcoin you can, and other digital assets, you can actually demand of exchanges or other platforms holding your assets to prove that they do so. And so proof of reserve software is available and customers are beginning to demand it. it the mm. first company to launch to introduce a SaaS product, an SMB and enterprise SaaS product here, is Hoseki out of Fidelity, and that's fortunately for us a Stillmark portfolio company. But we're also seeing another trend, and it's something we see in every bear market, which is folks look about look at the option to be their own bank. That was one of Bitcoin's core promises that you wouldn't have to rely on third parties to custody or to store your funds. You could do it yourself. That's also very difficult, but we now see in the market the acute pain um, and realization of what's at risk if you're not holding your own funds. And so we're seeing consumers recognize the value of that and send funds to companies like, for example, Casa, another Stillmark portfolio company. And this space is a bit more mature. And so there's many, there's several options that you can use when custodying your own funds. What about those lending protocols more broadly, Elise? And what about yield farming? I mean, is that sort of idea as it stands dead? What, what ends up being the, what flourishes out of that? 
Well, I think the concept of producing yield from a black box or making promises that can't be backed up um, with, frankly, economic activity that drives the yield, I think I hope that that is dead. What we saw in this last bull market was the concept of yield generated with a complete lack of economic activity. And in fact, we saw leaders in the DeFi space explain it as putting money into a black box and taking out more money. This, you know, of course, this is sort of a fantastic proposition that we're now seeing is just something that can't be secured over the long term. And so yield in that way, um, you know, sort of like the hopes and dreams based yield, I hope is dead. We will see products mature that can offer real yield based off of economic activity. And an example of that would be the ability to create yield on Lightning Network by lending out um, your position in the network to others that need it. Of course, it was Sam Bangman-Fried who referenced that black box on our very own podcast with our own Joe Weisenthal and Tracy Alloway about odd lots. And, and he's gone on to be the white knight of many of these lending protocols and, and, and platforms that have sort of taken a tumble. At least more generally, are you worried? I know you've seen bear markets before, but with the lack of activity that we're seeing on the space, with does that worry you in any way? Or are you just still feeling that this is a matter of time? In terms of in terms of entrepreneurial activity, we're seeing a flourishment actually, and so we have these really lovely tailwinds in the Bitcoin space provided by Lightning Network now, which is growing in adoption, as well as something on Lightning Network's roadmap, which is the introduction of other digital assets to the Lightning Network. Most importantly, the introduction of stablecoins to Lightning Network. That's a tailwind for entrepreneurs in general, including folks that haven't even gotten started yet. Mm. I think of it as I think of it as a similar opportunity as cloud and mobile introduced in 2008, which we know carried companies like WhatsApp or Uber even um, to great success through 2008 and beyond. And so that opportunity exists today for innovators. Elise, it's always great to catch up with you. Let you get back to the LA Sun. Elise Colleen, thank you. I'm still Mark. Back to Sun Valley now. Bloomberg's Shanali Basak spoke with Anthony Noto. He's the CEO of SoFi. She started asking, well, about the current economic climate. Take a listen. It's a year that's atypical from the standpoint that equity values have come down quite meaningfully. Inflation is obviously on the rise. You also have a very uncertain marketplace, and so cash is really king, and people are going to want to really conserve their cash. I think it's much more a year about partnerships and a year about extending new, you know, having partnerships that get extended and deeper, as well as finding new partners to try to advance uh, the business. There's never been a time like this in the last 30 years, and we've had so many, you know, conflating factors. Um, so the desire to partner and have more conversations is higher than ever. What is the investor tone here into such a tough macroeconomic environment? Remember, you yourself has had a 60% or so stock decline in SoFi, but so have many of the fintech players here. You were recently doing acquisitions yourself. How do you navigate that turmoil in public markets, uh, given you very recently also decided to go public? Yeah, we have to control on what we can control, so we're sticking to our strategy. You know, we found great success over the last three years, despite the fact that 
our student loan business has been negatively impacted by the moratorium on paying federal student loans. We've been able to grow 50% last year. We'll grow 50% again this year to $1.5 billion of revenue and increase our profitability on an EBITDA basis from $30 million to $100 million and seeing really strong growth in member and products per member. So um, that's what we can control and ultimately that will get valued based on the investor's appetite for risk uh, and their long-term orientation. Right now it's hard for investors to see out beyond the next 6 to 12 months because they're not really sure if we're going to have a soft landing or more challenging economic environment and so we're making sure they understand how we're planning our business, what we're prioritizing and that we're delivering again. What about another area of the market here? I want to pick your brain a little bit on cryptocurrencies. You have a lot of young customers who are looking at new ways of both borrowing, saving, spending, investing. Right. And you recently announced new crypto products yourself. In the market we see other brokerages uh, pausing withdrawals or other ways that uh, have impacted their consumers really deeply. As a CEO of a fintech company, how do you think about consumer protection in this space and things to watch out for? Yeah, well the first thing I'd say is our strategy is to be a one-stop shop for consumer financial services. So we have everything from loans to 1.5% uh, interest on checking and savings in addition to investing as you mentioned, uh, as well as a credit card. And, and investing, we also want to be a one-stop shop. So we offer fractional shares, uh, shares without commissions, our own ETFs, six robo-accounts, and the ability to buy 30 currencies. And when we launched th 30 cryptocurrencies, when we launched them, we literally put every time you go to buy cryptocurrency on our platform, a warning that says this is an unproven asset, it's highly risky, and you could lose all of your money. Because while there is an appetite to want to invest in these more risky assets, we have an obligation to inform people about the risks of them, and we do that on every time they buy or sell. What about plain old stocks, given that consumers are really feeling the pain right now? Do you think that this a meme stock frenzy is over, and even just that general interest from that marginal buyer, the, the young person looking to invest in that market for the first time? The invest members that we have are really long-term earning investors. They're focused on dollar cost averaging through the ups and downs of volatility. They do recurring investments. We offer the six ETFs that we have so they can actually buy what they like in a diversified way at a low price point. So we do have people that are continuing to invest in the marketplace despite the fact the market's down. Over 74% of our members say they'll continue investing more. About 35% of them because they haven't invested enough in their life and the other call it 35% because of the market being so attractive now. That was Bloomberg Shanali Basak there speaking with SoFi CEO Anthony Noto. All right, that does it for this edition of Bloomberg Technology. Do not forget to check out our podcast, though. You can find it on the terminal as well as online on Apple, Spotify, and iHeartRadio. This is Bloomberg. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com.